Hi, I'm Courtney. And I'm Patrick. And this is our true crime podcast. Evil Pudding. We are a husband and wife duo. I'm ex-military and law enforcement. And I'm a true crime professional fanatic. And we will together <laughs> will cover the most depraved and most shocking offenders and events that you probably have ever heard of. That's right. Only the most evil are covered here. So join us once a week. As we serve up some evil pudding. Hi, everybody. This is episode 78 at the True Crime B&B. And today I have a special treat for you because it's a special treat for me. Courtney and Pat from Evil Pudding Podcast are here with me today. And I love these guys. Courtney is one of my very favorite humans on the entire planet. We have really become close buddies and I'm super excited to have them here today. So please say hello, you guys, and tell us a little bit about your podcast. Hello, Beth. It's so good to be here. Thank you for having us. Well, I'm just super excited you're here. Yeah, Absolutely. You and we're the good guys today. <laughs> for the first time in history, we're the good guys. The I'm here to help you spread your wings. <laughs> Thank you so much. Now, as soon as you asked us to be on your podcast, we were so excited. We jumped at the chance. We couldn't wait. Tell people about what your podcast is about. Pat, you want to take it away? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's evil pudding, and as we call it, it's just the worst of the worst from just incidents that happened or people that happened and some of your big name ones, but Courtney really loves diving into the old timey or the older unknown stories, a lot of unknown stories. But one thing that's crazy about it is she's so good at the research that even if it is one of those Dahmer or one of those stories that everybody knows, she always comes with something you had no idea about. I think everyone she's ever covered that I knew was like, really? She'll get off and say, hey, did you know all that stuff? I'm like, not at all. And I'm just there for the color commentary and the dumb comment. What? So. That's not true because you've done a couple of your own episodes and you did a great job too. Thank you. A patisode. <laughs> you know, it's funny though, because when it's a large story that everybody already has heard about, mm -hmm. I normally won't listen to those on a podcast, but when you do them, I will listen because Aww. you always give me pieces that I never had a clue about. And I'm not going to cover those stories because I can't do the research to the depth that you do. That's not my genre. It's not what I do, but you do such a great job. Well, thank you. I love research. That's my thing. I love reading. I just soak it all up while crocheting, watching true crime documentaries. <laughs> That's my thing. That's but Patrick, don't sell yourself short. You are an ex-cop. So he always is able to bring the law enforcement side into it to add a little bit of you know, that perspective, which is good. And actually, now that you mentioned his cop background, I am interested in your take on how this was handled by the police. This is the story that I'm going to tell today. Yeah, you've listened to a lot of our episodes. You know, I usually have a bad um, <laughs> thought on how the police handled almost every single one of them. Well, I think they screwed the pooch at the beginning and then they, they, they sort of picked up. Yeah, they sort of made up for it in the end. But man, the beginning of it was kind of a big fumble. When it's important, right? Always is. Exactly. So are you ready for me to just kind of get into it? Cannot wait. I'm excited. I am not normally the bad guy because normally, no matter who is my guest, they normally want to be the bad guy. So I'm usually the good guy. Right. We didn't want to be the fun. Being the bad guy is a little fun sometimes. <laughs> well, it's true because there's so many really interesting and terrible cases out there yes. that haven't been covered before. Mm -hmm. I can't always do those when I have to be the good guy. So absolutely. Normally your stories are very, very heavy and dark, but since today you offered yes. to bring us the survivor story, I decided to take this opportunity to squeeze in a new architect mayhem today. Awesome. 
And for anybody who's not aware of my little sub-series, it's just that I pour through the annals of the architectural profession and I find cases where an architect was the perpetrator of a horrible crime. And a couple of them were, they were the victim, but most of the time they were the bad guy. Mm -hmm. And of course, yes, I am following the arrest of Rex Hewerman, but I'm not even going to think about covering him until after there's been a conviction on the Gilgo Beach murders or any others that he might have been found by then to have been involved with, because I hear that there are other places that they are trying to associate him. Right. I sent you that case over when I first heard of it. And I'm like, this is up your alley. But more is still coming out. <laughs> it will be a while before I can even look at him. Yes, we'll give it some time. And normally I wouldn't cover serial killers, but I would make an exception in the case of an architect serial killer. Right, right. So today I'm not talking about Rex Hureman, but this is installment number 10 of Architect Mayhem. So let me introduce you to Gracia Lazama, who was born in 1957 in Buenos Aires, Argentina. She was part of a large family of nine children. Gracia was bubbly, extroverted, and like us, Courtney, she had a cutting black wit that complimented her compassionate heart. Love it. She was extraordinary, special, and people everywhere just noticed her. She was a talented violinist and was playing in an orchestra in Buenos Aires. As she got into her late 20s, she began looking into furthering her musical career and connection. When her sister Constanza married a notable violinist in Britain, Gracia took the opportunity to broaden her horizons. She had still been living in Argentina until 1987 at the age of 29, and having just arrived in Britain to stay with her sister Constanza, she had a whole new world to discover. Gracia wasn't exactly sure what she wanted to do with her life, but this seemed like a good first step, and so that's where she went. Oh, wow. So she took some big gulps of her new life and got busy exploring this new environment. She was excited because she was going to get some mentoring and coaching from her new brother-in-law, Peter Thomas, who was also a notable violinist, as well as the conductor of the Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. Wow. The Thomases happened to be having a London architect commissioning some design work on their Ealing London home. The architect was a man by the name of Michael Jonathan Morton. He went by Joe. We're not on friendly terms, so I'll call him Michael or just Morton. <laughs> yeah, that's understandable. <laughs> Michael Morton had been born in 1938. He was the son of a wealthy landowner and a musician. His father had abandoned the family when Michael was three years old, and he had been sent away to private boarding school. Morton went on to study mathematics at Cambridge University. Years afterward, he turned his vision to architecture and received his license to practice at the age of 37. He worked for many years for the Greater London Council, and his specialty was the design and renovation of fire stations, which he mostly did during the 1970s and 1980s. In my career before moving to Georgia, that was actually one of the things we specialized in, so it seems strange that this mayhem-causing architect had such a similar career profile to me. Yes, absolutely. I'm looking, I'm looking him up now. Yeah, that's amazing. You got to find the picture of him with this huge explosive hair. He's crazy looking. Oh my gosh. People that he worked with considered him to be a skilled, capable architect, but that personally, he was arrogant and prickly. Mm. Architecture is generally a collaborative environment, mm -hmm. and Morton never wanted to share his work or show what he was working on. He was abrasive and secretive towards his colleagues. Mm. And also, apparently starting with his upsetting experience with boarding school as a child, Morton was dead set against classist things like private schooling. Mm. Eventually, he came around to being a proponent of Marxism. Mm -hmm. According to the Economic Times, the definition of Marxism is that it's a social, economic, and political philosophy that analyzes the impact of the ruling class on the laborers, leading to uneven distribution of wealth and privileges in the society, it stimulates the workers to protest the injustice. 
which to me seems like a clash with his abundant wealth and lavish lifestyle. Yes, you would think. (laughs) But I'm not here to reconcile him. I'm just trying to tell you a story and help you see who this guy actually was. Right. He's already a conflict, right? Yeah, absolutely. But already we can see the disparity between what he says and what he does. At the time of meeting Gracia at the Thomas's home, Morton had only recently completed his divorce from his first wife, Patricia. As they began the relationship, Michael made it clear to Gracia that his ex-wife Patricia would always be his best friend, would always be in his life, and he expected Gracia to treat her like a good friend also. He wanted no drama. Oh, okay. On the surface, this seems mature and positive, right? Mm-hmm. Something tells me it's not. <laughs> Hold that thought. <laughs> It's a red flag. I mean, what else can you say? It is a red flag. Hold that red flag. Hold it high. (laughs) Gracie was impressed and flattered to be pursued by a millionaire architect man about town. Yeah. He was 19 years her senior. His confidence and glib charm made her believe he was a distinguished gentleman. What he wasn't quick to share was that he had four children already by three different women, including Patricia. Goodness. Or that one of these children he actually refused to even acknowledge. Oh, But Morton laid on the charm and put the moves on Gracia, and by either May or September of 1987, he had convinced her to marry him. Now, the sources vary on that date, so I'm not sure, but it was definitely 1987. Mm -hmm. When Morton's mother died three years after their marriage, he inherited a large estate, which he invested in separate portfolios, one in his name and one in Gracia's name. Each of them was started with around half a million pounds, and this wealth was on top of what he'd amassed through his work. So they had a house in High End Holland Park in London, and they had a cottage that was located in Stonesfield, Oxfordshire. With the couple financially set, after the inheritance, he officially retired in his early 50s and occasionally just worked on private commissioned work after that, hence him working for the Thomases and meeting Gracia. The two welcomed a new baby, her first, his fifth, into the world in 1993. And how old was he? He was 19 years older than her when they married, but he was in his mid-50s. I don't know exactly. Okay. Okay. Well, good for him. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You optimist. (laughs) All my friends from back home are our age and they're just having newborns. It's like, no, I couldn't do it. Seriously. He has the energy. Go for it. (laughs) I know people that aren't that much younger than me. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, they're maybe 10 years younger and they just had a baby. And I'm like, do you have any idea what you're getting yourself into? Mm-hmm. More power to them. She was 36 when she had this baby. So nope, nope. My energy's gone. <laughs> On the surface, things seemed idyllic for them. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like it. But it's almost never as calm and peaceful as what people would like others to believe, right? Right. As I've mentioned before during other installments of Architect Mayhem, architects tend to be perfectionists and control freaks. And Morton was egotistical and super controlling. Okay. He had a very quick temper when she didn't do exactly as he wanted. Mm -hmm. He was frequently verbally abusive and he could be physically violent. Oh, that's not good. No. Morton was constantly stepping out with other women and became furious if Gracia didn't turn a blind eye. But she did get black eyes several times. Oh, no. Her psychotherapist even revealed that she had come into his office with a black eye. Although she was embarrassed to tell anyone that it was her husband hurting her, Gracia actually left Michael Morton for a brief period in 1995, although she ultimately did go back to him, because a lot of people do. Right. But she went back with a different perspective because she had begun training as a counselor and soon had gotten a job as an organizer for the Stroke Association. She was gaining her confidence back, 
learning new mental health skills, and she was preparing herself to be independent in the world. So she was really trying to set herself up to be successful. Right. On her own. On her own. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. By December 1996, Gracia had had just about enough of the double standard. The marriage was really on shaky ground. And she began her own affair with a man who lived nearby to their home in Holland Park. Mm -hmm. He was Sandy McDonald, a local businessman who helped her recognize that she deserved better and encouraged her to leave her abuser. In February of 1997, Gracia took the plunge and moved out of the Holland Park house and got her own flat in Kensington. She took their daughter with her. She pointedly did not disclose to Morton where she was moving to because she did not want him to find her. Right. She told her friends that she was scared of what he would do after she left him. She was very worried, paranoid even, that he was going to find her. Yeah. At this development, Morton dramatically announced in a fax that he had sent to Gracia in care of her sister Constanza. Dear Gracia, my love for you knows no bounds and I cannot live without you. I can foresee no prospect of happiness remotely equivalent of the distress I would suffer in the loss of my wife and daughter, and my future actions will be directed to minimizing distress. This isn't a threat. It's common sense. This dude thinks he's smarter than he really is. That's what it is. He's one of those narcissists that thinks he's smarter and above everybody else. Yeah, you're right, Pat. He thinks that he should be able to do anything he damn well pleases, but he should be able to control what everybody else around him does. Oh, yeah. He's, he's your typical narcissist that thinks he's just like so many serial killers and murderers you see. They're just smarter than everybody else. Mm -hmm. Right. And Gracia is scared for a reason. She knows that's the most dangerous time in a woman's life is when they're leaving their abuser. And he treated Gracia and their daughter as if they were property that had been unfairly taken from him. Mm -hmm. And he shouldn't have to give up what he's not ready to give up yet. Nope, he owns them. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. But on top of the high drama declaration that he had sent via fax, he grandly threatened to take his own life. Oh, he made threats towards Gracia. He wrote to her sister another ominous note, which read, quote, My wife and I have a contract repeatedly reaffirmed that the marriage we contracted is indissoluble and forever, end quote. Yep. But because she wanted to move on from this controlling jerk, in the springtime, Gracia did file paperwork to sue for divorce, with the primary complaint being the domestic violence against her. She withdrew money from the investment account that Morton had set up in her name and purchased and renovated the flat and bought a car. Mm -hmm. In all, she spent about 210,000 pounds towards her new independent life. But when she used some more of the money to put their daughter into private nursery school, this really rankled Morton, who resented everything about private schools due to his experience after his father left. Of course. This issue keeps coming up. This guy needed some damn therapy. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure anything she did, he would have an issue with right now, especially. Yes, but he kept picking on that. Because it was something that really did annoy mm -hmm. him. With his beliefs. But it was probably the only thing she had ever done that he could actually find fault with. Right, right. She was an amazing human. And he... It sounds like an amazing mother. Yes. So as the summer passed, Gracia rekindled the relationship that she had dabbled in with Sandy McDonald at the end of her marriage, and she reorganized her life to her own liking. So she was finding happiness. She was moving on in the world. When Morton had read the divorce suit against him, he had bartered with Gracia that if she removed mention of the domestic violence and verbal abuse from the suit, he would not fight the divorce action. Mm -hmm. In the interest of just getting this divorce completed, she agreed. So the divorce paperwork was revised to remove the abuse verbiage. After this revision, Gracia was just waiting for the courts to issue a decree nisi, which in the UK is an 
order stating that a divorce shall take place at a given time unless a good reason is produced. So it's basically the approval for the divorce to take place. Right. Despite agreeing not to protest the divorce, Morton was beside himself with rage that she persisted in starting a new life without him. Of course. He had only made that agreement to protect his reputation from looking like the abuser that he actually was. It was clear in Michael's history of violence against women, his misogynistic attitudes not only towards Gracia, but his other former partners. He had once told an ex-girlfriend, Charlotte Fenton, quote, You must never leave me. Women must never leave me. People mustn't do that to me. That's when the trouble starts. Nobody crosses him. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't as if it was his violence and control and compulsive womanizing that was the problem. It was the woman standing up for herself. That was the problem. That's the problem. Yes. Yeah, so he felt free to do whatever, however he chose. But a woman was forbidden from taking that choice out of his hands. Especially a woman that he is in a relationship with. There will be none of that. You will do what I say, not as I do. <laughs> exactly. Well, like you said, they're property. Your house doesn't walk away from you. Your car doesn't leave you. So why should your woman? Why should your wife? On the nose, correct. So the nine months between Gracia's moving out in February 1997 and the expected decree Nisi in November, it was a tense time. They argued a lot. They had many disagreements, in particular the obvious issue that Michael did not believe that Gracia had the right to leave him. She was supposed to wait around until he got tired of her, not the other way around. And again, using this as an excuse again, he didn't approve of Gracia's private schooling for their daughter because of his long-standing bitterness against private schools in general. Right. I mean, this guy just needed to get over it. Yeah. Well, that's his Marxist beliefs, too, because he's, remember, he's a Marxist. So Yes, that's exactly right. That private school thing is like, mm-mm, that's the wealthy over the regular. Yeah, but it's not consistent with his lifestyle, Pat. No, it's just... No, it's very much not consistent. It's just what he chooses to use. Yep, totally, that's it. He very much talks the talk, right? He does not walk the walk. <laughs> He's picking one item out of what he supposedly believes and sticking with that, even though the rest of his life is completely contrary to Marxism. It's what suits him. But that's because those were all his choices. This wasn't mm -hmm. his choice. This is against his beliefs that way. But he can do it fine. It's fine. I don't think I like that you're so deep in his head, Pat. Stop it. <laughs> I'm used to dealing with Courtney's cases. I have to get there sometimes. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Knowing that the decree Nisi would be coming down from the court within the next few days, Gracia wanted to get some of the school stuff settled, so she had driven to Michael's house in Holland Park the morning of Wednesday, November 12, 1997, to discuss this subject of schooling and just get it over with. She had gotten up, threw on some clothes, fed her daughter, and ate some breakfast, and rushed out to the car to get her daughter to nursery school on time. Then she dropped her daughter off at her school in Holland Park and then headed to St. Anne's Road to Michael Morton's home. She arrived at Michael's house, went in to start having this difficult conversation that she knew they needed to have, and Gracia disappeared. Mm. She had an appointment to meet her brother-in-law, Peter Thomas, the next day at the Barbican Center, where he was performing with the Birmingham Symphony, but she never arrived and never called to let him know she couldn't make it. Gracia's family immediately started looking for her, calling anyone they could think of to try to discover her movements in the last places that she had been seen. When they called Michael Morton, he said she had stopped by to talk about nursery school, but had been there for only an hour. He said she had come over to his house. They had discussed and then argued about private school. Mm -hmm. Then after arguing for an hour, she had, get this guys, she had inexplicably asked her soon-to-be ex-husband that she was scared of 
to pick up and watch their daughter that night. Mm -hmm. She had given Morton her car keys and her flat keys, and then she had just left. Just took right off. That sounds like something I absolutely would do with my (laughs) ex-husband. In all sarcasm. Yeah, especially if you're terrified of him. She just took off and he had no idea where she had gone. Wow. I mean, that that must have raised some red flags, especially with her side of the family who knew the whole story. 100%. Good. Gracia's car was found parked in the street outside and her cell phone was found under the seat. So if she just walked off, she left her phone and just took off. Yeah. Her family continued trying to find her themselves, distributing photos, putting up flyers, hanging posters everywhere they could. Mm -hmm. Constanza, her sister, was sure something had been done to Gracia. She knew how secretive her sister had been about the address of the new flat. She knew that she had been super careful to keep Morton from finding out where she was living. Constanza didn't believe for one second that her sister would just peace out, take off, and disappear. Mm -hmm. Giving him all her keys, taken off on foot without her phone, and left her daughter and her new life behind. That just sounded like bullshit to her. Absolutely. Yeah. And her cynicism was grounded in the fact that Constanza knew about Morton's violence. Good. She knew how controlling and just downright weird he sometimes acted. She knew he was continuing seeing other women after his wife disappeared without a trace. The family was very vocal in advocating to the Metropolitan Police to look into Gracia's disappearance. The day after she went missing, her concerned romantic partner, Sandy McDonald, and another friend went to her home and used a spare key to enter to try to figure out if there were any clues as to where she could be. After looking around for several minutes, the door opened and in walked Michael Morton. Oh. He told them he'd never been there before, and he only found it because his four-year-old daughter told him where it was. Oh, because four-year-olds just know their way around so well. Yeah. My daughter didn't know what city we lived in when she was four years old. No, of course not. How to get to her house, and especially not in London. They're like MapQuest if you didn't know. You ask a four-year-old, and they can tell you how to get anywhere. Our 18-year-old doesn't know our address, so. (laughs) (laughs) What chilled Sandy and the other friend was that although they were worried about her, she hadn't been officially reported missing to the police yet. Okay, right, because she's an adult. And no one at this point had assumed that Gracia wasn't coming back. Yeah. They were worried about where she was, but nobody thought that she was dead. They just didn't know where she was. Right. Mm -hmm. For Michael Morton to casually stroll into her home where he was not the least bit welcome. Right. It seemed obvious to them that he knew she wouldn't be there. Two days after she had been missing, her sister Constanza noticed a rolled up rug or carpet stretched across Morton's car boot or trunk. Oh. That same day, he had theatrically sobbed to Constanza saying, quote, she's dead. She's dead. What am I going to do now? That's a very big leap from she's just missing. She hasn't been seen. Exactly. When Constanza asked him what would make him say such a thing, Mm -hmm. his reply was that he knew she would never leave her daughter. And this statement was chilling to Constanza because she knew that was true. She never would leave her daughter. Right. Yeah. So the family continued trying to find her. And when they weren't able to uncover any information, they finally got the police involved. When Gracia was reported missing on the fourth day, police detective constable Russell Hughes visited the Morton house to speak to Morton and noticed that there was what he called a shrine on the stairs. Oh. The shrine included naked and semi-naked photos of Gracia and a photo of her sleeping, along with a jar of flowers. Wow. Detective Constable Hughes asked Morton what this was about, and Morton replied that he thought Gracia must be dead 
and went on to talk about how he loved her so much. It was later revealed that he had created a similar shrine at his cottage in Stonesfield, Oxfordshire. Of Gracia? The shrines? Yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah, little shrines to Gracia because he knew she was dead, right? Those are his trophies. What a weirdo. Those who saw these shrines thought it was very odd, just like mm-hmm. I think Pat said a second ago. It was very odd that he would assume she was dead and start mourning her. When there was no evidence that she was actually deceased. Right. And she'd only been gone for four days. Right. But this was just another one of the inconsistencies in what he was saying versus how he was acting. Mm -hmm. For another six days, the first 10 days that she had been missing, the police swallowed Morton's dubious and ridiculous story of her leaving her life of her own accord and treated Gracia as a missing person rather than as a potential victim of a crime. There was no immediate investigation at the Morton house. Mm Mm-hmm. Once the investigation turned from simply a missing adult to a potential crime, the police did start trying to put together a case. They contacted Crime Watch UK to publicize the case and get Gracia's photo in front of the public. Police searched Morton's home in Holland Park, his cottage in Stonesfield, Oxfordshire, and Gracia's flat in Kensington. Inside her flat appeared as if she had intended to be right back, like she didn't plan to be gone long. Her half-eaten breakfast was found still on the table. Her unmade bed was noted, mm-hmm. and her passport was still there. Right. None of her luggage was missing. It did not look like the home of someone who was running off. Oh. And the moment you said that she left her cell phone under the seat, I mean, that's just, you would always take your cell phone if you were going somewhere. Right. I mean, even if you thought someone was going to track you, you could turn it you off. You can turn it off, yeah. Except in an emergency, but you know. You need to have the option there in case something happens. Absolutely, I would think. No evidence or clues were found at either of Morton's homes as to what had happened to her. But of course, 10 days had elapsed between the last day she was seen and when the police finally treated her case like a potential crime. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that, Pat? It's, it's two-sided, right? Because they didn't have anything pointing to a crime. They just had a whole lot of weird stuff that didn't line up. But to me, to me, that means dig more. Circumstantial. Eventually, if you keep digging, you got stuff that doesn't make sense. Just keep digging because something's going to make it make sense at some point. Don't wait until you... I also don't know the laws in the UK. That's true. I don't know UK laws. They might. Yeah. But but even if it was here, I would sound like I wasn't digging into a few of these things. Why would you have a naked photos of a shrine to your wife that you know is dead that no one else knows is dead? That's... Why would you assume and announce that she has died right. before, you know, when she's only been missing for four days? Yeah. He and... said it to her sister. He said it to the police officer. Right. And that she spent this time hiding from him, staying away from him. And she just showed up one day and was like, here's your kid. According to him, showed up and said, here's the kid. I'm, uh, here's my key. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That doesn't matter. It doesn't make sense. None of it makes no. any sense. And it just. It should trigger more digging is what I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. It irks me that they didn't even ask to look around his house until 10 days had passed. Mm-hmm. Especially when they heard a rumor about a rolled up carpet. I mean. Yes. It's a rumor. Yeah, but there's no carpet when they go see him. What are they going to do? Right. Yeah. Her bank account and credit cards were untouched from the time of her disappearance. Okay. CCTV footage was found of Gracia leaving her flat at 8.40 a.m. on the 12th of November. But they didn't really look any harder at that time. It was three more years before the CCTV footage was found of Morton the day he walked right into her flat as if he knew she couldn't possibly be there. Wow, three years. A year after the last sighting of Gracia, the BBC Crime Watch program asked for anyone with information on anything that happened in that area at that time to please come forward. 
and his neighbor, Christine Lewis, called Crime Stoppers and also the police. Christine Lewis told them that she had seen him the night of Gracia's disappearance, carrying an approximately five-foot-long bundle of something that looked like bamboo cuttings and ivy, but the effort it required for him to carry it made it seem as if this bundle contained something far heavier than bamboo cuttings. Okay. She said Morton, at the time of carrying this heavy bundle out of his house, appeared to be pale and looking straight in front of him. Ms. Lewis later testified that, quote, he didn't look like he was aware of anything. zombie light. Quite a strange look. Hmm. In February 1999, Morton's home in Holland Park was served with a search warrant. Back areas were covered with tarpaulins. Things were dug up, floorboards were pulled out, and Morton was arrested. But, again, nothing was found, and Morton was released. Right. After this search, Morton successfully sued the Metropolitan Police for thousands of pounds of damage to his property. Oh, goodness. Fast forward to five years after Gracia's disappearance. Scotland Yard reopened the investigation, and this time, Detective Chief Superintendent Hamish Campbell treated it as a murder inquiry and not just as a missing person. Good. On November 15th, 2002, a breakthrough was reported, and Scotland Yard began performing forensic testing on a car that had been recovered in Oxford. This car had come to light through leads that were received after the new appeal for information the previous week. And also at this time, the neighbor, Christine Lewis, who had witnessed Morton carrying the unexpectedly heavy bundle of bamboo cuttings the day Gracia disappeared, was begged by investigators to call in again for additional questioning. After Gracia had disappeared, Michael Morton had claimed to police he had never been to her flat and, in fact, didn't even know where it was. But six years after her disappearance, the dogged police investigators hadn't given up. They had continued poring over the CCTV footage that had shown Gracia leaving her home the day she went to Michael's house. And one day, they finally found what they were looking for. On the day after Gracia disappeared, CCTV footage had captured images of Michael, too. Now we knew he had been there because he had walked in on Sandy McDonald. But now there was photographic proof of the date and time. It showed Michael strolling serenely through Gracia's Kensington neighborhood. Good. Then it showed him walking directly to her flat, knowing exactly where he was going and letting himself in with a set of keys. In June 2003, Michael Morton was arrested and arraigned at the Hammersmith Police Station and was formally charged with the murder of Gracia Lasama Morton. Good. His trial started in October 2004, and Morton did not testify. Morton's current lady friend at the time of trial, Nicola Nesbitt, testified that Morton believed that Gracia, who had come to Britain without her own wealth at the age of 29, was just trying to acquire his money through the divorce. Wow. Morton had written a note to Gracia telling her, he didn't want her to be without enough to live on, but that she needed to stop being greedy. Of course, it also came out that the only reason that Morton had even set up the original investment account in Gracia's name was so that he could avoid paying support to his previous partner. Okay. He was being greedy by not wanting to pay what she was due, calling Gracia right. greedy because she wants what she's due. Right. Absolutely. But the fact was that after seven years, Gracia could be declared legally dead, at which time, since they were still married, right. Morton would inherit the remaining funds in the investment account, Gracia's free and clear flat in Kensington, and any money in her bank account. So he stood to gain around £750,000 upon the legal declaration of her death. All he had to do was wait it out. Some said Michael was furious with Gracia and wanted to punish her for leaving him, mm -hmm. and that he wanted her money instead. 
he had to be the one who got the upper hand. But it was fairly widely accepted that the fight that precipitated the murder probably did start over that tired old fact that she wanted their daughter to attend private school. Right. And Morton, as we've mentioned many times, obviously didn't want that. Right. In the moment. That may have been the thing that enraged him, but I think it had been building up since before she left him. Right. The rebellion. And her rejection of him, his loss of control. Increasingly, it just made him want her dead. It was just a boiling pot. It was. Anything. It was a straw that broke the camel's back. Regardless of what it was, it was going to happen, you know, at some point. Coming from him, yes. It was kind of an inevitable fact because he was just that guy. Mm -hmm. Coming from another person, they would just get over it. Right, right. So this millionaire architect who had married a spirited, vibrant, accomplished violinist had casually demeaned his wife of 20 years by telling all of his friends that she was just a surgically enhanced trophy wife. We don't even know if she was surgically enhanced and who cares if she was, but he was doing it only to try and give her like post-mortem humiliation. Well, I was going to say, even if she was, which who cares, but even if she was, you know, she's missing, presumed dead by this point. Why would you say that? It looks so bad for you. I mean, it's just ridiculous. He's trying to just stomp all over her name after the fact. Yeah, it's a character assassination. Yeah, it's a character. Like, you know, obviously, I believe he did this. And that's not enough. He has to also stomp on her name afterwards. Exactly. Yeah. So his womanizing had never missed a beat Mm -hmm. during their marriage, after the separation, or after she was missing. He acted as if he had adored her, but in reality, she was a possession to him, which we've already discussed. Right. She was supposed to just take whatever punishment he decided to give her. Of course. But remember, the revised divorce paperwork made no mention of his cruelty towards her during their marriage. Having that abuse documentation might have been helpful. It might have been. The trial lasted seven weeks, and at the end, the jury was unable to reach a verdict. Oh, no. So a retrial was scheduled for the following June 2005. In the second trial, more witness testimony was shared that illustrated the kind of man that Michael Jonathan Morton was when he was in a relationship. The prosecutor recounted how Gracia's sister Carolina filled in some of the blanks with an anecdote of a conversation she had had with Morton. She had asked him if he had hit Gracia. Mm -hmm. The prosecutor said, quote, he admitted he had punched Gracia in the face once when they were in Spain. He laughed when he told her, meaning Carolina, that Gracia had had to buy sunglasses in order to hide her bruise. Wow. He was boasting about it. Yeah. He thought it was hilarious. Mm -hmm. Another anecdote relayed was that Morton had warned Gracia when they married that if she had any of what he called premenstrual moods, (laughs) then he would consider himself to be unmarried. And I don't even know what that means, but that's just a gross thing to say. (laughs) Well, Pat, Patrick, as a husband, what... How do you feel I would react if you were to say that? You punch me in the face. I mean, damn. (laughs) I don't even understand what he's trying to say there. Well, you know, I'm not going to touch you and I'm not going to put up with your crap when you get PMS. Yeah, don't PMS around me. I'm not going to put up with it. Dude's a trip. You know, maybe he shouldn't be abusive and maybe she'd be less likely to be stressed out all the time. Yeah. In addition, some of his other previous partners were brought in to testify with multiple women stating that he had a fixation on never being dumped. Mm. He needed to be the one who decided when a relationship was over. Mm -hmm. Police concluded that Gracia was in danger, and we spoke of this earlier too. We're like always ahead of the game on these things. Mm -hmm. 
Police concluded that Gracia was in danger from the very day she left him, which we all know is absolutely true. And the day the abuser loses control, the danger goes up exponentially. Yes. There was also testimony that Morton loved the attention being on him as the suspect because he really believed he had gotten away with it. He thought the police were stupid and he had outsmarted everyone. Mm -hmm. And during the eight years between Gracia's murder and Morton's second trial for her death, he must have felt very smug in the comfort of believing he had gotten away with it. Oh, yes. They literally had given him a head start and hadn't begun investigating in earnest for 10 days after she was missing. By the time they had started the searches of his home and property, there had been 10 days to dispose of her remains, to clean up evidence. Plenty of time. To destroy any sign of what might have happened to Gracia. Mm -hmm. There was no body. There were no fingerprints of note. I mean, Morton's fingerprints don't mean anything in his own house. Right. Unless they're in her blood, right? Right. There were practically no witnesses aside from the neighbor, and there was really no forensic evidence. Right. And I don't know what happened to that car they found in Oxford. They never mentioned that again. We'll probably never know, to be honest. Probably not. The day the images of him were found on the CCTV footage with him going into Gracia's flat, it was already six years after she was gone. His plan had come very close to completion, as he had almost made it to the end of the seven-year period after which he could have his missing wife declared dead. Mm Mm-hmm. That would have been nice for him since he would have inherited that 750,000 pound estate. Right, right. But fortunately, DCS Hamish Campbell had renewed the investigation and had gone after him again. They truly hoped for a murder conviction. But on August 1st, 2005, because there was really no physical evidence, the jury came back with a bittersweet verdict. Morton was cleared of murder, but convicted of manslaughter. He was sentenced to seven years. He showed no emotion as he was led away to begin his incarceration. Morton was 67 when he began his sentence, and assuming he had served his full seven years, he would have been 74 when released in 2012. Okay. I tried to find whether Gracia's family had taken any further action, like a civil case against him, Mm -hmm. or he just kind of evaporated after his conviction. I can't even find confirmation of when he was released from prison. Right. I think some of that, the reason it's so hard to find more information is because a few years ago, Another Michael Morton, but in the U.S., was exonerated after serving two decades for the murder of his wife. Yes, when I was looking him up, I saw another Michael Morton come up. Yeah, so the duplicate names and the newness of that exoneration, it's just, it's overshadowing the older case because nothing new had come up from that. Police have theorized that Gracia's body had been hidden or buried near his cottage in Oxfordshire when he killed her 26 years ago. But still to this day, Gracia's remains have never been found. And then another side note, at the age of 10, their daughter had effectively lost both of her parents. She would be 30 now. I know. I was thinking about her. So hopefully she spent the rest of her childhood with Gracia's loving family and got to learn what her mother was like. Mm -hmm. Although Michael Morton was convicted, this case doesn't really feel like justice. He only lost seven years of his cushy life in his mansion. Yeah. But Gracia lost a lifetime of happiness. Her family was cheated out of all of those years with her. Her daughter grew up without parents and especially without Gracia, whom everyone said was just a wonderful, sparkling, vibrant, and beautiful person who was absolutely devoted to her little girl. So I wanted to share her story because Gracia should never be forgotten. She absolutely shouldn't. And it needs to be remembered, too, that her family never got a body to lay to rest. No, they didn't. They never got... That breaks my heart. ...kind of finality to what happened to her. I hate that. And only seven years. I know a lot of the cases in the UK, I know they don't have the death penalty, but those sentences are considerably shorter than here a lot of the times. 
And with good behavior, I believe that they really are only required to serve half of it most of the time. Right, right. I find it interesting that they got him with Manfolder without a body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I figured they were going to get him with, you know, some other stuff. I'm surprising they could get him with Manfolder if they never found her body. Usually to have a murder, you have to have a body. Right. Well, I think that if they had had any physical evidence, any kind of blood, any kind of yeah hair, I don't know, anything that would have acted as physical evidence, I think he would have been convicted of murder. But because it was all circumstantial, I think that they just, I mean, he obviously did it. They didn't have anything to convict him on. It's very clear that he did it. And I think it was clear to the jury that he did it. And they didn't want him to just walk away. So that's that's why he got the manslaughter instead of... Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'd be really interested to know. I mean, I don't care per se, but I'd be interested to know what his childhood looked like after having such strong abandonment issues with and such issues with the woman being the one to break up with you. Like that, you just can't do that with him. I knew you were going to go there because that is your bread and butter on every killer you ever do is their childhood. Because we'd love to look and see what caused them to be that. And I knew she was going to be like, I wish I could see his childhood. He's a textbook narcissist without throwing the term around. I didn't go deeply into his childhood just because I only have a limited time on this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. What I read was that his father, he basically just walked out at age three and he never mm. saw him again. And then his mother was kind of yeah. non-present. And that's why he got sent to boarding school because she just didn't want to mess with him. Definitely not an excuse. Kind of explains a few of his abandonment issues. It also explains his whole man leaves, woman doesn't leave thing, right? His Mm -hmm. dad left, so the way it affected him, he's going to be the leaver. No one else is going to leave him ever again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that very well could be. That has, yeah. But regardless, we don't like him. (laughs) Yeah. No, he's still a dirtbag. That is the end of installment number 10 of Architect Mayhem. Oh, that was crazy. Courtney, could you please step out of your normal bad guy comfort zone and be our good guy today? Yes, absolutely. I'm excited to tell you guys about this one. Patrick knows I told him the story earlier, so he was mind blown. So I'm hoping that you're going to enjoy. I use that term loosely. It's crazy. It's crazy. No, not enjoy. (laughs) I will appreciate the, the fine telling of your... Oh, thank you. I'll do my best. Terrible case with a happy ending. <laughs> Absolutely. She struggled to condense this to a shorter version because if you know her, she wants to get every detail from everything. So she struggled <laughs> to condense this just enough. Okay, here we go. We're talking about Ashley Reeves of Illinois. In 2006, Ashley was 17 years old and she was a high school junior in Millstadt, Illinois, living with her parents and her younger sister, Casey. Ashley was your typical teenage girl. She did well in school. She was a good daughter and a good friend. And she was eagerly awaiting graduation the following year. But in the meantime, she was just letting herself enjoy high school. She was popular. She had a longtime steady boyfriend named Jeremy. And she was just an all-American teenage girl with her whole life ahead of her. But unfortunately, that would all come to a screeching halt. On Thursday, April 27th, Ashley let her parents and her sister know that she would be attending a job interview in Fairview Heights, which is about 20 minutes away from where she lived in Millstadt. She said that after the job interview, she planned on going to play some basketball and that she would be home by her 10 p.m. curfew, which she always was. She never was late. So she left around 3.30 p.m. with a change of clothes packed, you know, to play basketball after. 
Now, she had borrowed her boyfriend Jeremy's car that day, which was something she often did. That was not out of the ordinary. So when she drove off, that's what Ashley was driving. Unfortunately, her 10 p.m. curfew came and went. And by 1030, Michelle, Ashley's mom, was worried. This was very unlike her. So Michelle asked Casey, Ashley's little sister, if she had heard from her sister, which, of course, Casey had not. So Michelle and Casey proceeded to do what any mom and sister would do. They started to frantically blow up Ashley's phone, trying to get a hold of her. If she's not in a bad place, then she's like, God damn it, would you leave me the hell alone? Yes. What are you doing? Right, where it's only 30 minutes late. So it's like, look, her little sister's probably saying you're in big trouble. You need to answer. But unfortunately, Ashley never responded to any of their calls or texts, which was very unlike her. So following her gut, Ashley's mom called the St. Clair County Sheriff's Office and told them that she was unable to get a hold of her daughter. At first, officers reassured Michelle that Ashley was probably just out with friends and lost track of time. After eight hours passed, however, there was still no sign of Ashley. Right. Officers then decided they'd better go ahead and start looking for the 17-year-old. Yeah. Eventually, they would find Jeremy's car, the car that Ashley had been driving. It had been abandoned in Laterman Park in Belleville, which is about a 15-minute drive from Ashley's home. Inside the car, investigators found Ashley's bag that contained the clothes she would have worn if she had gone to play basketball. This was very alarming. So she never made it to basketball? Yes. So she obviously never changed out of her nice interview clothes into her basketball. Yeah. Yet they found her car at a basketball court or at a park with a basketball court. Yeah. Even though there was one way closer to her house that she would probably normally... Or Jeremy's car. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not the suspicious one. Right. Interesting. Okay. Immediately, police knew this was not just a case of another rebellious teen. This was now a missing persons investigation. So police started, of course, with Jeremy, Ashley's boyfriend. He was brought in for questioning since he had been using his car the day that she went missing. But it wasn't long before investigators saw that he had absolutely no idea where his girlfriend was. He was just heartsick, the poor kid. He was so worried about Ashley. He hadn't heard from her. He was worried sick. And he told interviewers that he had loaned his car to Ashley that day so that she could attend that interview and then go play basketball afterwards at the park. Now, like Patrick had mentioned before, one thing that baffled everyone from the start, this park, Laterman Park, where the car was abandoned, wasn't the usual park that Ashley played basketball at. In fact, this park was quite a ways away from her home, like 15, 20 minutes. And what's weird about this park is why would she go to that park when there was a park in her literal neighborhood where she usually played basketball? Well, when she played basketball, was it just go shoot some hoops or was it to actually go practice with a team? You're asking the right questions because that's what caused investigators to think that Ashley must have been meeting someone specific because it wasn't her usual park, you know? And they changed locations on them. They changed locations on them. Yeah. Okay. So while investigators were busy determining Ashley's whereabouts, Michelle, her mom, was doing some detective work of her own. She's absolutely amazing. We'll grow to love her. She called the phone company and they released Ashley's phone records to her since Ashley was under 18, so they could do that. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out on the phone records, 
there were several incoming and outgoing calls to one number in particular, a number that Michelle didn't recognize right off the bat. So she called it and a man picked up. That man was 26-year-old Sam Shelton, a teacher. I know. Ugh, don't like him already. Don't be calling 17-year-olds. He was a teacher at a local high school who happened to have been Ashley's teacher back in 2001 when she was in seventh grade. Oh, gross. Yes. Very odd. And it gets even more odd. When Michelle asked Sam if he had by chance seen Ashley, he said no. So Michelle started to inquire as to why he had been in communication with Ashley. Good question, Mom. He abruptly just hung up on her. That's the way to cover your tracks. He didn't even try, did he? (laughs) Nobody will think anything weird about it if I just hang up on you when you're asking innocent questions. Let's just hang up and cause more suspicion. (laughs) Fortunately, though, Ashley's close friends would be able to provide some insight as to Ashley's, quote, relationship with the 26-year-old very popular high school teacher. According to one article I found, one of Ashley's friends stated that Ashley was romantically involved with an older man. The two would often gather to play basketball, and Ashley had plans to meet him the day that she went missing. And that man was Sam Shelton. Nothing that you just said was a surprise as soon as you told us that he had been calling her and he was her teacher in seventh grade. there's no reason. For an adult grown man to be in constant communication with a 17-year-old girl. He's been grooming her since she was in seventh grade. Sounds like it. It seems like in the last 10 years or so, we hear about 10 of these cases Mm -hmm. a year where teachers are having these ridiculous lopsided affairs with students that I don't understand. I don't either. Do they go into teaching because they wanted 14 and 15 and 17-year-old kids? Or do they just discover once they get there, they're like, oh, they look pretty good to me. What is wrong with these As people? As we go on in the story, I think that you're going to get some insight into Sam Shelton. And maybe we can understand him. Can't speak for all of the offenders out there. But I mean, this guy, I'll tell you, is something else. I can comfortably say that I feel, oh, this is my opinion, He displays some very narcissistic tendencies. He just feels very above the law, above everybody. Hmm. Sounds very familiar to somebody we just heard about. Absolutely. I was going to say, absolutely. We just heard a case about one just like him. Mm -hmm. Put him in the scumbag bucket. I agree. So Sam Shelton, a little bit about him, not too much because we don't care. Sam Shelton was a young driver's ed and gym teacher at Belleville High School where he lived with his mother and grandmother near Laterman Park. If you remember, that's the park that Ashley's abandoned car was found. So detectives went to the high school where Sam worked in the middle of his workday, which I love. Mm -hmm. And they asked him if he would like to come back to the station with them for questioning. (laughs) Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, it was. I'd love to be helpful to you. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah, he agreed. Nothing to hide, you know. So he agreed. He went back to the station. There is footage of his interrogation. It's super long. It's worth it. I mean, I I watched it, but it's just something else. I recommend it. You can YouTube it. But during questioning, Sam told detectives that he and Ashley were strictly friends, that they would on very rare occasions Mm -hmm. meet to play basketball. And he was absolutely adamant that his relationship with the 17-year-old was platonic. However, 
when he was confronted with the statements of Ashley's friends that their relationship was of a romantic and a sexual nature, he quickly changed his tune and he began to victimize himself. He told detectives that Ashley was just obsessed with him and that he tried to avoid her, but she was stalking him and just wouldn't leave him alone. Just oh, the poor guy. Me, right? So after several hours of this and a lot of pressing, Sam finally at least admitted to being with Ashley on the day that she disappeared. He claimed that she had met him at the park and gotten into his car with him and that they went for a drive. As he was driving around, he claimed that he was talking to Ashley and telling her, look, I just want to end this relationship. You've got to stop. You're obsessed with me. Okay. So everything he's saying, flip it. And that's what really happened. Well, he's the victim here, right? Mm. (laughs) But Ashley got upset and began screaming, according to him. I bet she was screaming, but it wasn't because of the reason he said. Yeah, exactly. He told investigators that he then abruptly pulled over, undid Ashley's seatbelt, told her to get out of the car, and he left her there on the side of the road. And he claimed that when I pulled off, she was alive and well, and he would never hurt Ashley. And I find this funny. He said he would never hurt Ashley because he, quote, has a very weak stomach. What the fuck? He said that, in fact, he stated that his stomach was so weak that he couldn't even watch violent movies. So it's not that you as a human being aren't capable or you don't have the desire to hurt other humans. I know. I mean, this guy. It's going to make me feel sick if I see your blood, so I'm not going to hurt you today. It's all about him. Oh, what a delicate sunflower. Hmm. Yeah, he's a very delicate flower. He went on a tangent, if you watched the interview about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I just had to look away. It was just too violent for me. I mean, it's just all about him. Wow. So detectives knew there was way more to the story. Yeah. Sam wasn't being forthright. And by this time, Ashley had now been missing for 30 hours. That's a long time. Is The clock was ticking, and they needed to find her ASAP. Okay. What was the weather like? It was winter in Illinois, it had been cold and it had been raining. So that'll give you an idea. Yeah. So I'm worrying about where she is. Yep. Yep. Oh, we'll get there. Don't worry. I know. I'm trying not to jump ahead, but I can't help it. (laughs) No, you're good. That was my whole thought process when I was learning about this story. I'm like, wait, was she out in the elements? What was the weather like? She's cold. She's wet. It's raining and she's cold. Yes. Those are facts. Yep. Okay. So in an effort to get Sam to hurry up and tell them exactly where he had left Ashley and what had really happened to her, detectives mentioned to Sam, they tried kind of a new technique. They mentioned to Sam how disappointed his grandmother would be in his behavior. (laughs) For whatever reason, this broke Sam. He started crying. Where the hell did his grandma come into things? Apparently he likes his mama and his grandma a lot. Well, he he lived with his mom and his grandmom as a grown man. Yeah. He did? He lived with them? Mm -hmm. He lived with his mom and his grandmother. And this detective, this one investigator, I don't know if he was a detective, had actually mentored Sam in his younger days, I believe in the Boy Scouts, and was familiar with his family's dynamic and knew that Sam had a soft spot for grandma. So that's why they brought him in okay. and kind of tried that line of questioning. And it, it worked. He cracked. Smart. Good for him. Yeah. Well, good for him because I'm glad they got it out of him. So 12 hours into the interrogation, that's a long interrogation. That'll happen. Sam admitted that he had, in fact, choked Ashley and dragged her out of his vehicle. 
He claimed that while choking her, he had heard a loud pop. And he said that Ashley's body went completely limp. Realizing that he most likely had snapped her neck, Sam panicked and dragged Ashley into the woods. He then realized that the 17-year-old, she was still breathing. So, and this is rough, he decided to wrap his belt around Ashley's neck and using his foot for leverage, he pulled as hard as he could until his leather belt snapped. Wow. And he doesn't like violence. He has a weak stomach. Oh my God. No words, right? Just no words. Wow. Wow. Satisfied that he had just killed Ashley, Sam took off. Eyewitnesses later claimed that they saw Sam that night out and about at a bar line dancing. Oh my God. Exactly. I don't even know what to say about that. That's horrifying. It really is. So yeah, to clarify, after he committed this act upon a child, let's be real, he went out dancing. The same night he went out dancing. I mean, I'm just... Well, that little problem's cleared up. I guess I can go have fun now. Casey Anthony. No words. So after his confession, Sam agreed to take investigators out to Belleville to another park called Citizens Park where he claimed that he had left Ashley's body. Ashley had been strangled multiple times, three times to be exact. In the car and then with the belt. And then another time before the belt, I believe that he... When it popped. Probably more times, yeah. Oh, God. I mean, we don't know. I mean, he admitted to... He's one of those guys, if he admits to strangling you three times, you can probably add a couple of times to it. You just can't take anything he has to say to heart. Right. She had been strangled three times, according to Sam, and her body had been left out in the woods. Like you said, Beth, it was cold and rainy. So there was little to no hope that Ashley would be found alive. They were basically going to recover a body. Right. Not find a live person. Right. They searched the 45-acre wooded area around the park, and they finally spotted Ashley after half an hour. Wow. She was lying motionless on her back and covered from head to toe with insect bites. And I know that sounds like, oh, insect bites, but the investigator. No, that sounds. Yeah. Horrible. When he said that when he found her, her face was just unrecognizable. She had just been chewed up. Just horrible. As investigators were looking over her remains, Ashley's hands began to move and her chest started to rise. Holy crap. By some miracle, she was alive. However, she was in very critical condition, as you can imagine. Of course. EMTs rushed Ashley to the hospital where she was placed into an induced coma. Wow. And it was still unclear if she would make it during that time. Was she very touch and go? Conscious when they found her? Or was she completely unconscious and moving by reflex? I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if she spoke. I'm not sure if she was all with it because I know in the end, she doesn't have a recollection of much. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too, right? So I'd have to go back and look to see if she was able to speak or name anybody. You know, that's a good question. She may have been conscious enough that she heard people around her and she could, that's all she could do at the time was like move her fingers or move her hand. Signal with her hand. Yeah, she most likely, I mean, this is just very much speculation, but she may could hear people around her and see the lights flashing because they found her at nighttime. I believe it was like 8 p.m. at night. Wow. And 
see flashlights. If she had laid there another night all night long and they had given up the search. She wouldn't have made it. Wow. It just all came together just perfectly to even find her before she was deceased. Mm -hmm. Yep. Wow. The perfect storm, so to speak. So in the meantime, Sam was charged with first degree attempted murder and taken into custody. Despite his confession, he pled not guilty. And shockingly, he was released on bail to await his trial. Now, his victim's still in the hospital fighting for her life. We're not even sure if she's going to make it. And he was released on bail, which is... That seems ridiculous. It, it seems ridiculous to me. While Sam was home, he attempted suicide and was brought into the emergency room where he survived. However, in true narcissistic fashion, while in the ER, he came to and attacked several hospital staff members while throwing racial slurs around. Did, That'll show you what kind of person he is. He just gets more and more endearing. Didn't he leave a note too? He left a note. They didn't release where it was left. Their speculation when they found him in the botched suicide attempt, if it was on the mirror, or some say they left a sticky note on his back before that said, do not resuscitate. So take from that what you will. Yeah, he's basically saying, under no means, bring me back, because I don't want to have to deal with all this. I don't, I don't want to deal with whatever. Uh, I say resuscitate and throw the book at this ass. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. I don't want to deal with the consequences of my actions. Yep. Well, the judge presiding over Ashley's case initially, and I think this is exactly what Sam wanted, to be honest, the judge initially questioned if Sam was mentally fit enough to stand trial. However... It was determined that his failed attempt on his life, that's what the judge referred to it as, he determined that that was just a way for Sam to gain empathy from potential jurors, and ultimately he was declared fit for trial, thankfully. Yeah, it was manipulation on his part, just like, well, I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to kill myself. Yeah, he's not. You're just manipulating somebody. Right, and jury's out if he meant to do this or not. You know, in my opinion, he is the type of guy that he would never. And this was just like the judge said, it was an attempt to gain sympathy from the jury. You know, the way I see it is whether it was intentional and he really wanted to take his own life or it was mm -hmm. a play and he really didn't want to take his own life. Either way, he did it for the wrong reason. Mm -hmm. Either way. Yeah. I guess it doesn't matter why he did it. He did it for the wrong reason. Usually... It's kind of dark, but usually if someone wants to kill themselves, they do. Right. They don't, they don't botch it. Yeah, it's, that's true. Ashley's family, understandably, did not want to be put through the agony of the trial. So on April 27th, they signed a plea deal, and Sam was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Get this, Beth. His projected parole date is in April of 2024. Wow. Yeah, that's coming up holy crap that's coming right up it's coming right up i don't see how but man somebody in prison needs to pick a fight with him and get him a few more years added on oh absolutely absolutely <laughs> but as for ashley i am happy to report that she made a full recovery that's amazing at 17 years old and keep that in mind when i'm telling you the rest at 17 she had to relearn how to walk and talk wow. and swallow and drink and all of that stuff so did he break a vertebra in her neck is that what the pop was if i had to guess it was probably the hyoid bone that he probably cracked or something like that oh maybe so i mean he mm -hmm. he did some damage she had to relearn to walk even so maybe you're right. Maybe it is a vertebrae. 
in the cervical spine. She's lucky she wasn't paralyzed from the chest down, you know? Absolutely. Wow. That's amazing. Absolutely. She never gave up fighting. And at only 17, that's remarkable. Yeah. She did say that she remembers very little, if anything, about that night, which she considers a blessing. Wow. And I don't blame her. Oh, yeah. That's a blessing for sure. Yeah. And she still lives in Illinois, and she's now married and has two children. And she works as a caregiver, which I think is cool. She cares for others now after everything that she went through. Absolutely. She's got a kind of a compassion for people that have been through physical traumas like that, that most people that are healthy and able-bodied never know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good for her. She's done an amazing job rebuilding her life and moving forward. And I hope that that pisses Sam off to no end because she won, you know? Oh, absolutely. And I'd like to know what he's going to do when his ass gets out of prison and nobody will have him. Oh, I know. Exactly. Because there's a big A on his chest. But I'd like to mention that not once has Sam Shelton ever issued an apology to Ashley. Not once. What a dick. Grandma couldn't even convince him to do it. He still victimizes himself. Not once has he publicly apologized, privately apologized, nothing. Which is beyond me. You would think, I don't know, you would fake it, you know, but he can't. This is a guy who's basically, I mean, stalking is a strong word, but he basically stalked her from 12 years old or 11 years old until she was 17 and was finally yeah, at a point where she would give in to him. Yeah, absolutely. Of course he's not going to apologize because he doesn't think he did anything wrong. No, no, he's the victim in all this. It was all her fault. Everything that happened was her fault in his mind. He's the victim in all this, regardless of the fact that he groomed her from seventh grade on. Yes, that's exactly what happened. And I know, I don't believe that he worked at her high school anymore. It was at a different high school that he worked. It had to take some effort on his part to keep in touch with her. You know, you have to wonder also how many other groomed children had he been doing the same thing with or trying to do the same thing with for the last five or six years that he's been a teacher and how many victims were out there that maybe aren't even known about? Oh, for sure. I mean, we'll never know unless they come forward, unfortunately, because you know, he's not going to admit it. Nope. No, but you can take solace that he was probably groomed for the past 20 years in prison by much larger, meaner men. Oh, very true. (laughs) I was like, wait, what? (laughs) I know it took a minute for my brain to wrap around that. And I'm like, Oh, I get you. I hope so, Pat. I hope so. He deserves it. I think it makes me more angry that he didn't even issue an apology, even if it was Crocodile Tears, because that's just beneath him. He's never going to do that. And there's a movie about her. Was it Left 4 Dead? Is there? The Ashley Reeves story. I looked it up. Yeah, it's, like, it's like Jenny Garth and a bunch of other people are in it. Oh, is there? I didn't know that. How did I not know that? That's crazy. I'll have to watch that. I'm surprised I don't know this case if it was big enough to make a movie about it. I was surprised too. That's insane to me. Wow. Yeah. Good for Ashley. She's my hero. 17 years old. Wow. And she was able to relearn how to do the most basic things and move on to become a successful human. I think she won for sure. Well, she's kind of the classic kind of survivor that we normally cover because she not only survived a horrible thing. Mm Mm-hmm. And justice was done because that asshole ended up in prison for 20 years. Right. But she came out of this 
relearned everything, rebuilt her entire life by herself. Mm -hmm. And now she's taking what she learned from her experience and she's helping other people who need that kind of knowledge and that kind of understanding. I just think that's amazing. Yes, absolutely. Good for her. I can't tell you that I would have the grit to do what she's doing. I saw an interview with her and she's a tough cookie. She's out there talking about her experience, what she remembers and pushing through and probably raising her kids to have the same fighting spirit. So good for her. Well, she may not have the emotional, I'm sure she does have emotional trauma, but she doesn't have flashbacks of it, Oh yeah, you know, because she doesn't remember it happening. Right. But at the same time, she had so many physical things she had to overcome from this. Oh, absolutely. And just knowing what she's been told, right? Yeah, exactly. Good for her. What a badass. She's just- I know. Strong, strong, strong. I am so happy that you brought me that story. And let's not overlook Michelle too, her mom. Yeah. Good for her. Without her mom, none of this would have ever come to fruition. Very proud of her. And she, I'm sure the police would have eventually. Yeah, that's a good mom. Checked who had been talking to her on the phone. But when that douchebag hung up on the mom the very first time, her hackles went up and she's like, something is wrong with this guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She may not have lasted another night out there, cold and rainy and so injured. Oh, yeah. That was an amazing story, Courtney. Thank you for that. Absolutely. I am so thrilled that you guys joined me today on this episode. For the 10% who are hearing Courtney and Pat for the first time, please go find them and tell people where they can find you. Find us on any listening platform. Right, Pat? Yeah, it's on all listening platforms, but we're also on what Instagram. And Facebook. And what's your handle there? It's a great question, Beth. <laughs> I don't know. She handles that stuff. So. I don't know my username. <laughs> I think it's at Evil Pudding Podcast. Bailey always had to remember ours too. I don't even give it anymore because I'm like, hey, you're here, whatever. <laughs> okay, I got it. It's Evil Pudding Podcast on Instagram. We're not very active on Twitter, unfortunately. I know you're only on there because I chided you to join. It. Exactly. And then I sort of abandoned it. So. <laughs> Jokes on you. <laughs> yes. We're more active on Facebook and Instagram. Facebook, same name. <laughs> Horrible about Twitter. But yeah, Instagram has a link to all the listening platforms and everything that we're on too. So we just uploaded 58 this morning. Yeah. We used to do every week and we this year we slowed down to every other week. We're very behind. <laughs> you and me both. It's okay. We're still here. Well, because, I mean, look at what we tried to do today. We spent an hour trying to figure out the damn audio on this. I know. Yeah. recording and my headphones weren't working the entire time so i don't even know what it's going to sound like on my end this is why this is rewarding to do but it's not an easy hobby to have no this is a lot of work no it's not an easy hobby it takes some patience but i love it wouldn't trade it especially all the people that we get to meet i never would have met you otherwise beth if it wasn't for this hobby so and i miss you when i don't hear from you and I would never have learned crocheting if it wasn't for you, so. You used to crochet when you were little. I did, but just with my grandmother. I never made anything other than a link of 37 <laughs> single crochet chains. <laughs> and I called it a bookmark. Well, I'm glad I could have that little impact upon your life. <laughs> You're very influential. That's all she does now. All she does. Literally driving up yesterday to see the girls and she's... Yes, absolutely. I think everyone should do everything I like to do. <laughs> But I don't kill people, I promise. <laughs> well, this was a great story you brought us. I think we are at the end of our recording fun. because my thing's going to poop out pretty soon. 
<laughs> my computer is spinning as fast as he can spin, so I might just have like a flare up in front of my face. This is all the computers can be asked of. Thank you so much. You're amazing. I love you both to death, and I hope everybody will come and find you because you have a great podcast. If you like an in-depth story, then Courtney and Pat are the ones you need to be listening to. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Got any last words before we say goodbye? Nope. We just have to have you on now. You have to come up yep. with an evil story. I'm flying to freaking Houston to do that because we are not going through this shit again. Hey, that works. That works. We're ready for you. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. This has been Evil Pudding Podcast. My guest host here at the True Crime B&B. They are amazing, and we thank you for being here. Bye, guys. Bye. You have to say bye, Pat, or they don't get any closure. Oh, I already let her say bye, so bye. So, let me see. I don't know. Oh, that's crazy. That's crazy. I know. It's crazy. The Holland Pat. With the couple fanage, blah, blah, blah. But six years after her disappearance, the dogged investigators, those investigators did such a good job. Investigators. <laughs> but, but remember, the, let me try that again with English. Was that Morton had warned Gracia that when they married, that when, I don't even know what I'm trying to say. But unfortunately, DCS Hamish Campbell, oh, sorry, not unfortunately. Fortunately. But fortunately. <laughs> fortunately. Totally over overcoming over overclouding over. I know what you're trying to help, say. Help. <laughs> it, it Overshadowing. Yes, yes. Yes. Good job. Sorry, I was coughing. It was a silent cough. I liked it. Are you okay, Beth? I'm sorry, my headphones no, screwed up. Can you say Can something? You hear me? I can't. My headphones are not working. I but no, I think that my speaker has been going the entire time. It's a slow, painful death. We're cursed today. I'm sorry. It's me. Anytime I have anything to do with technology. <laughs> She's like technology COVID-19. <laughs> sorry, we have a kitty. Interrupt. Oh, no, plus. I'll do my best. <laughs> you want me to start over? So I don't even know. My end might have been recording you guys in the background. So I and don't know the what do the hell Our dog's in the background. Like. Mine's having a nightmare behind <laughs> me. Pat's in another room with the bulldog snoring. Yeah, yeah my cat was meowing a little oh, bit in the middle. It's just a menagerie. You have to say bye here. Otherwise, they think you're going to be there forever. They're going to wait for me for 10 hours. I'm just. It's like, damn, is he ever going to say goodbye? Coconut is having a nightmare. And Jackson is behind Patrick and is snoring so loud. I could hear him. Coconut, stop it. This dude thinks he's smarter than he really is. That's what it is. He's one of those narcissists that thinks he's smarter and above everybody else. Are you talking about the dog or are you talking about Morton? Hold that pen. <laughs> That's not the right phrase. What is that phrase? Hold that. Well, never mind. Hold that. Hold that thought. <laughs> Hold your opinion. How can I be so stupid sometimes? <laughs>